taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of apologetics while taking truth into the arena of ideas. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we enter into the arena of ideas. Coming to you from Pilot Mountain, North Carolina, and Ronan, Montana. We want to bring you the Word of God here on our podcast today. And our Word comes from Psalm 147, verses 4 and 5, which state, He, God, counts the number of the stars. He gives name to all of them. Our Lord is great, vast in power. His understanding is infinite. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of Christian apologetics while taking the truth into the arena of ideas. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast. My name is Curtis Evelo, and I'm joined by Brian Chilton as we answer your most pressing apologetic and theological questions of the day. Well, hello, everyone. We've been praying for you. Just wanted to take a quick minute and remind you to keep praying for your family, your loved ones, your friends. And don't be afraid to discuss God things with them. Uh, and maybe, it uh, maybe, just maybe, it might be fruitful. Just remember to press in and, and always be willing to give a defense for the hope you have in your heart. Let's welcome on Brian as we start to adventure into the stars. Hey, Curtis, nice segue there, my friend. <laughs> I was going to say, I was actually going to say, you know, the, the leader of the stars. So, you know, but... <laughs> I figured, no, nah, I better not. Hey, I got a couple things I want to mention right quick as we get going here. First and foremost, I want to say, uh, uh, Doctor uh, David Baggett. Uh, been, I've been posting some articles for him on the uh, uh, MoralApologetics.com, and he actually named me a senior contributor to MoralApologetics.com. So, I want to thank him for the opportunity to uh, be part of his ministry. He's doing great work, and they're uh, doing some wonderful things down in Houston Baptist University. And just want to encourage you, if uh, you have an opportunity, maybe you're at a church, to get a hold of Dr. David Baggett. Maybe he he would be a wonderful speaker to come uh, share the ministry they're doing at uh, Houston Baptist University. They're starting up a brand new school there called the uh, Moral uh, Apologetics, the School of Moral Apologetics there at uh, Houston Baptist University. So if you have a chance to uh, get them at your church, and uh, we encourage you to do so, and maybe you'd like to contribute to the ministry. Also, I have a shirt here. You can't see it, but Curtis can. Uh, see if I can pull it up here for him. Uh, it's kind of hard to see. One of my mm-hmm. yeah. One of my professors at uh, Liberty, and uh, have the distinguished honor of having him on my dissertation team, uh, Dr. Chad Thornhill, is uh, he is really good at the American Ninja Warrior type stuff, where they <laughs> climb on their fingertips and do these things. Well, he actually got accepted and will be competing on this year's edition of American Ninja Warrior. So the uh, shirt says. Uh, Dr. Dad Chad. Uh, so his name's Chad <laughs> Thornhill. He's a dad and he's a doctor. So Dr. Uh, dad Chad. And so uh, wearing this purple wow. shirt with a logo on to support him. So we want to wish him the very best uh, as he competes in the American Ninja Warrior uh, awesome. competitions. I'm just, I'm yeah. honestly envious that he's able to do the things that he is because I can't get my big old self up there to begin with. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I certainly no, could but hope. you could, but you could lift the wall. <laughs> well, you, you know, maybe climb over. You could just lift the wall. <laughs> going under it. Well, there's always that. <laughs> <laughs> Back in the power lifting days, huh? Yeah, unfortunately, I'm paying I'm paying my dues now for <laughs> for all those heavy weights I lifted back in the day. That's good stuff. Well, congratulations with the uh, moral apologetics. That's wonderful. That's uh, that's good. And uh, let's hope and pray for Chad that he uh, is able to, you know, be on board and be able to uh, um, spread the love of Jesus there while he's doing that that'll be awesome absolutely and again if your church can help this the center for moral apologetics uh or organization maybe you have a business who would be able to donate and help them uh they're doing great work down there and so uh be get in contact with dr david baggett and and uh, the good folks down at houston baptist university and they get you they can get you set up there mm-hmm. yeah and did you uh, was the latest article um from bellator christi um posted on there is that what is that what it was about? it was yeah. and actually uh he's dr baggett's been sharing a bunch of the articles i've been posting and and he says well why don't we just go ahead and make you a senior contributor uh since you've been posting these things you know mm-hmm. so uh, again honored and privileged to be able to to take part in the work mm-hmm. that they're doing at moral apologetics that's good so we're gonna get into uh into the stars <laughs> I was going to call it dancing with the stars but I I couldn't I couldn't quite pull myself to to do that one so I was wanting we'll to get the doctor the, one. I was wanting to get the doctor who theme and play it as we're going to <laughs> Yeah that's yeah, exactly it get the telephone yeah. booth flying around <laughs> Right Oh my goodness So anyway we're going to be talking tonight uh folks about astronomy and astrology and so uh we're going to get right into it I know Brian and I have you know, we, we spend some time just finding ourselves at night or in the early in the morning just staring at the stars and glorifying God and thanking Him for what He's done and just His beauty, just the raw beauty of being able to look into it. I know um, there's many people that, that don't get a chance to really see the stars as frequently as I do, and I my heart goes out to them because I walk out in the early morning with my uh, go out and go outside with my coffee and I can look up and shoot I can see galaxies <laughs> it's so dark out here <laughs> yeah and seeing some of the pictures you've been sending me from Ronan Montana I'm envious of some of those views you have especially oh, of the Missions Mountains I mean we got a good view of Pilot Mountain here but I think Pilot Mountain's like 1600 feet and the Missions Mountains are what like 14 15,000 <laughs> Yeah, something yeah, like ridiculous. that. Yeah, it's like it's like uh, razor teeth just sticking out of the ground. It's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, let's go ahead and uh, get started in on this, Brian. The first question I'm going to ask, though, um, let's kind of get a baseline of what those two mean. So, astronomy and astrology. Uh, what is the difference between the two? Well, astronomy and astrology are similar in the fact that we're de- dealing with stars, but they're worlds apart from even their origin and, and the whole basis uh, about what they even do, on what they even do. I mean, granted now, I will say that the names used for astrology and astronomy probably should be reversed, but astrology came first and then uh, astronomy came later. 
Astrology is a method of predicting human and world events through the combination and configuration configurations of stellar constellations. Uh, so there are patterns in the night sky, and these patterns were recognized and put together early on. Uh, you know, and they they labeled names. They saw certain figures. We do the same thing with clouds. We see certain a cloud that looks like a dog or a or a rabbit or something like that. Well, they did the same thing with stars uh, and the constellations and the, the collection of these stars. And so it also comes from an ancient belief in omens, Greek word omina. Uh, or omina, which means that which states that certain physical things can can be a sign of something good or bad that's to come. So the word astrology comes from two Greek words, asteri, or asteri, asteri, I think is how you pronounce it, meaning star, and logos meaning the study of something. So astrology means the study of stars. Astrology involves the study of the zodiac and the impact that celestial bodies may have on terrestrial beings, but it doesn't always have to be that way. Um, there is a form of astrology that's even connected some with Scripture that sees certain signs in the constellations and the arrangement of the stars that give certain portents of something that's to come. Uh, and we'll get into that as we go along. Uh, the most popular version of the uh, of, of astrology, uh, well, in astrology you have this zodiac, which are twelve constellations that represent twelve stages or signs of the year. Uh, the most popular version consists of the Aquarius, Sagittarius, uh, Aries, Capricorn, Pisces, Virgo, Scorpio, Taurus, Libra. Uh, Gemini, Leo, and Cancer. I was born on October 25th, so that makes me a Scorpio. Uh, I'm one of those people. Uh, but other forms of the zodiac are found in other civilizations as well. Uh, the Chinese culture has their own Chinese zodiac. Uh, but this, mm. instead of different parts of the year, it's arranged in different years themselves. You have the year of the snake, the year of the bear, the year of the different things. Uh, but even in some Jewish mysticism, uh, a zodiac is found. In, with Jewish mystics, uh, such as, um, oh, the Kabbalah, uh, I think even uses this, unless I'm mistaken, if memory serves, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel are used as 12 zodiacs. And it just so happens, being born on October 25th, my sign would be the tribe of Dan, which is not good. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't they not mentioned in the... I think they're not mentioned, are they? <laughs> yeah, I would have to be the tribe of Dan being a Scorpio. Why couldn't it be part of the tribe of Judah if that's the case? <laughs> so that's astrology. But astronomy is... Uh, oh, by the way, in the Chinese zodiac, I'm a snake. I'm a snake, I'm a scorpion, and I'm, a, I'm of the tribe of Dan. That's not a good combination. Okay, Dan. <laughs> Well, my father-in-law's name's Dan, so I guess not all Dans are bad. <laughs> <laughs> That's, oh, my goodness. But astronomy, uh, different word, is, is the study of the stars or, or the study of the law of stars. Uh, astronomy mm. studies the manner in which the stars travel and traverse the night sky. 
Astronomy itself is a scientific study of celestial bodies, and the term comes from two Greek words, asteri, meaning star, and nomos, meaning the law. So it's the law of the stars. But here again, if we really look at what the two fields do, Astronomy should be called astrology, and astrology should be called astronomy. So the two words are kind of mixed up, even in the way they, uh, even in what they mean. But literally, astronomy means the law, law of the stars. And astronomy is strongly based on mathematics, whereas astrology is based on mythology and sometimes divination, and sometimes looking for different signs, uh, depending on how the uh, work is done. So. Um, those are the essential, that's the essential distinction and differentiation between the two fields of study. They're similar in the fact that they involve stars, but they're worlds apart, stars apart even, um, in what they actually do. Thank you. <laughs> hey, so quickly, um, you said a, you said a name that I want to make sure, or, or, a, or you know, a title that I want to kind of clear up and make sure that that. Every all the listeners um, are on the same playing field as as us. You said celestial. We're not talking about aliens. We're talking about stars. We're talking about yeah. outer space. That's that's called a celestial. Yes, um, celestial so, means heavenly. Uh, that's okay. not even necessarily talking about divine. It's talking about things in the sky. It's a celestial, okay. heavenly bodies, whereas terrestrial would be things on the earth. Okay. Yeah, I just wanted to clear that up so we're all sitting on the same Absolutely. same riverbank here. Absolutely. So, um, so how far back into history are these two studies tracked and documented? Well, astrology is the oldest, and it dates to the Babylonians and Mesopotamians. Uh, it is at least, astrology is at least as old as the second millennium B.C., but it mm. very well may be older than that. Um, there, there is good, strong belief. There is a good, strong connection that uh, it originated around the Mesopotamian Babylonian culture around at least twenty one hundred. But again, there may be evidence that it goes back even farther than that. Um, so it's it's an old practice uh, looking for signs and omens in the night sky. Astronomy, however. Uh, was formed in Greece around 500 B.C. Now, this is interesting. I, I didn't know this until I was researching this. There is a website from, um, let's see if I can pull this up, from um, Oregon universityoforegon.edu uh, that talks about some of the proposals from even early uh, Greek philosophers. Hipparchus, around 100 B.C., produced the first star catalog and re recorded the names of the constellations that we know today, and it's still mm. used uh, in that regard today. Uh, so this is around 100, 100 B.C. Now, it, here's the thing. The farthest they could see at this time was the planet Saturn with the technology they had. Uh, Neptune, Uranus, I'm not going to call it by the other one because you know where that'll go. Mm -hmm. uh, Neptune and Uranus <laughs> and, and Pluto, whether it's a, whether it's a star or a planet or not, um, I kind of right. am inclined to believe that it is, but some others don't think that it is. Nonetheless, whatever that case may be, the, the that is, it ended with, it, in other words, 
they believed in five planets, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. And it was obvious, though, that the planets weren't the only ones there. Uh, the moon passed in front of the sun and the planets, Mercury and Venus. And so, so it was... Um, but later, Plato first proposed that the, the uh, planets followed a perfect circular orbit around the Earth. Now, of course, he was wrong. Now, Plato was right on a lot of things, but he was wrong on that. He, he developed right. the, he, the uh, uh, geocentric model, believing that mm -hmm. the planets revolved around the Earth. Uh, Heraclitus, uh, in 330 B.C., developed the first solar system model, placing the planets in order from the Earth, as it now is called the geocentric model, and then beginning um, of the geocentric versus heliocentric debate. Now, Aristarchus, in 270 B.C., was the first to propose the heliocentric model, and he got it right. So he developed a model which showed that the Sun was at the center, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and the moon all circling around it, and then followed by Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. Again, they thought there were other things out there outside of the pl those planets, but they really didn't know for sure. But uh, understanding the fact that they had limited tools, it's amazing that Aristarchus and others like him yeah. is early as 270 B.C. already believed in uh, the, the heliocentric model. It's absolutely fantastic. And so Ptolemy in 200 AD was an ancient astronomer, geographer, and mathematician who took the geocentric model of the solar system and gave it a mathematical foundation. Uh, so this, this debate went back and forth even in the earliest times. And um, so Copernicus in the 1500s reinvented the heliocentric model or theory and this became even church doctrine at this time. They they had adopted Plato's version, and it became church really? doctrine. And so, um, hmm. but he challenged that according to mathematics and the way that the uh, planets revolved, and um, and and the way they uh, due to the retrograde motion of some of the planetary bodies, he showed that uh, that the planets revolved, including Earth, revolved around the sun rather than everything revolving around the earth and that was a huge something Aristarchus said long ago but that was a huge challenge that the church and early and the people of the 1500s had to face whenever they wow. began to realize that the universe didn't revolve around the earth but we revolve around the sun uh, it was mm -hmm. a huge change in their in their yeah. theology and philosophy that's amazing and you know you think about it okay so um you know, obviously, ancient, historically, it's shown in the ancient uh, cities and ancient, just ancient cultures um, that they had, um, what do they call those, the star clocks or, or the sun clocks, the sun sundials and, and such on the way back. How far back do you think that went? Oh gosh, I I shudder to even think, but you know the sundials went back mm -hmm. a long time ago. Right, um, I I would really I would really hate to even try to guess on that. I, so I, if if they're if they're if they had sundials of that time period or back in those times, and that's how they, they told time obviously were in those days, right? And they were obviously paying attention to the things in the outer outer you know outer layers of of the earth 
and and so it just kind of to me this this kind of almost proves the fact that um people were aware they just couldn't quite maybe figure it out or maybe quite put their finger on it well and they in the in the 1500s and later they would have telescopes the things that would help but the telescopes then weren't all that great you know it, it, it was better than seeing with the naked eye at night but it wasn't like the telescopes we have now but still mathematically they were able to figure out some of these things and again as early as the 200s right. bc aristarchus had it right but right. you know you had a big giant in by the name of plato who was arguing something different and granted you know, you could see where that would be e- an easy mistake to make because you, you can follow these these motions. You see, the moon is is turning around the Earth. You see, the sun is the sun and the moon and all of these different planetary bodies seem to revolve around the Earth, and so that would be an easy mistake to make. But mm-hmm. eventually, they would find that it was not even close. Uh, the universe would get much bigger. As the more they investigated it, mm-hmm. and you were asking about the sundial, I happened to look this up right quick. The first sundial was created more than fifty five hundred years ago, in the year thirty five hundred BC. Uh, wow. The sundials have even been found in ancient Egypt, uh, Egyptian ruins. Many ancient cultures, including the Egyptians, Greeks, mm-hmm. and Romans, used sundials. The Romans were first to divide the day into twelve hours to better mark right. times and meetings. So. Right. It's amazing yeah. to really think about. Yeah. So they were. I mean, they were. They were wondering what was. What were those things out there? And I can just imagine that that uh, somebody had some sort of idea of of Hey, let's use this thing to <laughs> follow it because you know the the reflection or the shadow off of the lizard that's on my foot. You know, it's going over over you know two inches to the left, and so they probably started thinking, Hey, let's this is this is a steady thing this is a constant so let's use that constant as the ability to tell time oh yeah you know pythagoras pythagorean theorem and and, and it's amazing how mathematics uh like the pythagorean theorem and all these other things that they found using math to, to discover a lot of the things that they did um hmm. I was never a mathematician, but I always wanted to be, <laughs> and envious of those who were. But uh, you know, it's amazing. You know, even how you can take uh, physics and, and calculate laws of motion, and and come up with uh, even seeing the trajectory of where missiles are going to strike, or where certain things you launch something in a certain place. On this goes into missile launches, a rocket launches all the time. You you have to calculate to the nth degree to make sure it's going to go where it's supposed to go and land where it's supposed to land. And it's, it's just mind-boggling to me. Mm. It's interesting to me uh, that, you know, we as a uh, quote-unquote advanced culture um, think that we're so smart, but yet these guys... They were brilliant. Oh gosh, yeah. This stuff out. If they had the technology, we had. Well, I have even heard it said that if it weren't for the wars, that uh, because they had a tumultuous society, one nation would conquer another nation, and and there would be wars and all these things. But if it hadn't been for all the warfare, hadn't been for all the problems in ancient cultures of 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 nations all trying to overtake one another, they would have probably discovered much of what we've discovered now. 
years, thousands of years before we ever did. Holy dang. You know, it, wow. the, the the problem. I mean, they even had an ancient form of a, of a of a computer. I mean, it was it wasn't didn't run on electricity, but it had these gears and functions that that would calculate numbers and things, almost like a calculator. But it was a form of a computer they had in ancient days. Is and wow. even the Romans. Now, now the Greeks were more technically precise in um, theoretical and scientific studies engaging the universe and philosophy but the romans were very mechanically inclined and were geniuses when it come to building and constructing things because they built um aqueducts that are still in use today right thousands of years old is still in use today yeah it's amazing isn't it it is yeah so how does the study of astronomy and the Bible fit together, or does it at all? I think it does. I think if you look through the pages of Scripture, you you clearly see. I mean, you clearly see the uh, adoration of God from the the creation He's made. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, Psalm one forty seven. We read this at the outset of the podcast. He counts the number of the stars. He gives names to them all. Um, and it's an amazing thing to think that. God knows all the stars that exist, knows them by name, and He also knows us and knows us by name as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, Psalm 148.3, Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 talks about um, how God made these different stars, made these different lights, uh, have them as dividing day and night. Um Deuteronomy uh, said, one ten says, "The Lord your God has so multiplied you today that you are as numerous as the stars of the sky." Um, so the stars came in to play a lot of times. Uh, so you know, this this is um, he built. All, you know, anyhow, it, it, we go through and Job is uh, what I was trying to look for here. Um, Job twenty two. 12, it says, Isn't God as high as the heavens? And look at the highest stars, how lofty they are. Uh, 38.7 says, While the morning star sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for glory, the morning star, uh, the, the morning star represents the planet Venus, and uh, it is also the evening star. It's going to be the evening star here in about a month. It already actually is. You just can't see it right now. But Jesus himself is called the day star, or, or, or the... Uh, or the um, the morning star is what that represents. I was trying to find, I think that's in Malachi. But anyhow, long story short, the stars are used in multiple applications throughout the pages of Scripture. And so people in antiquity, people in biblical days, they acknowledge the fact that God had created a marvelous universe and the stars were part of that beautiful creation that he had made. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and it tells us in Scripture that the heavens declare the glory and the majesty of God. Absolutely, most certainly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, um, you, you kind of think about this when we look at the size of the planets and where they are in relation to us, and the distance, and so on and so forth. Um, it's just mind blowing when we look at that. It either it either makes us just in awe of God and God's um, vastness, or uh, it, it makes us just feel just 
so small. <laughs> yeah, and I think those are natural reactions to the universe. In fact, if we really stop to consider just how big our solar system is, and then stop to consider that our solar system is just one billionth, mm -hmm. maybe, if even that, of the, of the Milky Way galaxy, and then our galaxy is one of billions of other galaxies in the universe. I mean, this place, it's its almost overwhelming. And I'll be honest with you, Curtis, I, I, I was out in the uh, back deck, and the lay of our land is, is such where our house sits up on a hill, and so we have a really great view of the night sky. And I was sitting out there, and I was just, just happened to be messing with my phone, and I was looking up at the sky, and just, you know, as the sun was setting, and look how dark it was getting, and, and I thought, to myself, I want you know, and had been study, had been looking and looking at what was going on with the Mars rover on on Mars, and how they say that the air is, is not ha you know not breathable, it's not uh, hospitable to, to human life there. And I thought to myself, you know, they, how much air do we have? How long would it take if I left this planet and could, if I left the ground and went up? How long would it take me to get to the edge of space? And I found that the that it's only 62 miles. Whoa. Only 62 miles. Whoa. That's, yeah. That sounds like a lot. But mm. in our area, uh, what would be 62 miles from, from Ronan? Uh, so from Ronan to mm, Kalispell, maybe 60, 70 miles. Uh, Missoula... From Ronan to Missoula is probably close to 60. So, I mean, yeah, it's not very far. My southern accent has been coming out here. I've been, I've been saying Ronan all wrong. Ronan. <laughs> I've got to say it right next yeah. time. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. We all say Ronan anyway. <laughs> well, fr from here, you know, we live fairly close, fairly close to Mount Airy, North Carolina, which is Mayberry, if you watch the Andy Griffith Show. Around sixty oh, wow. miles is from Mount Airy. From Mount Airy to a town called Statesville, south of us, is around sixty-two miles, and we could be there in about an hour, maybe a little bit longer, yeah. depending on traffic. So I'm thinking to myself, yeah. it would take us about an hour to get from there to Statesville, and I'm thinking to myself, that's all we have separating us from the void of space. I'll be honest, I almost had a little panic attack thinking about that because I'm thinking, yeah, that's yeah. not a lot. <laughs> yeah. That's not a lot. And uh, to think that once you go past that void, once you go past the limit, you know, you're talking about the absence of oxygen and, ast and uh, astronauts have said that if you were to be there, uh, the radiation of the sun would kill you and would cause your skin to fry and, and your blood to boil and your lungs to collapse all at the same time. So you'd almost be freezing and in you, one section and boiling. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, you freeze to death. And boil to death. Yeah. And boil to death. <laughs> and only 62 <laughs> miles separate us from that. Yeah. And you talk about the Goldilocks, the Goldilocks zone. Um, golly. Um, it sure points to the fact that we got a divine engineer 
uh, organizing this thing. We do. I mean, and just go ahead and skip down to the to the fifth question, which was, you know, can the study of scar, stars, uh, the study of stars demonstrate intelligent design? What you just said was absolutely what I was about to mention. The fact that we are in this Goldilocks zone, we are in the perfect spot between the sun to be where we need to be. If we were a few miles past that, we would freeze to death. If we were a few miles closer to the sun, we would burn to death. If the moon were any different than what it was, the gravitational pull on the... the Gravity of the moon is only a sixth of what it is on Earth, but still it helps Mm -hmm. to control the tides of the oceans. If it was any different, then the tides of the oceans would be completely different than what they are now. Um, Mm. Even in the solar system itself, we are located two-thirds out from the center of the solar system. If we were any closer, it would be like, what's the biggest city in your area? Uh, Well, Missoula is probably the biggest city in our area right here, but in, in our state, I would say Billings. But. So, so Billings. You just imagine all the traffic going into Billings. You know, right now in, in Ronan. You know, uh, I don't know how much traffic you guys but have, but looking at the beautiful scenery, it looks like it's a very peaceful place. But just as you mm. closer you get to Billings, the more traffic and congestion you're going to have. Same thing for the state of North Carolina. It would be like going to Charlotte. Charlotte is crazy. It's mm, like the. Yeah. 10th or 15th largest yeah. city in the United States. It is crazy. Traffic is madness. But that's the way it is in the solar system. I mean, uh, the Milky Way galaxy. The closer you go into the um, Milky Way, the center of the Milky Way, the more congestion, the more uh, energies you have, and the more pro- you know, more clusters you have, more uh, debris you have. Life couldn't survive that. And by the way, it just so happens to be that they caught a picture of the moon, the back side of the moon, the dark side of the moon, and it looked like the Death Star off of Star Wars. Really? Catch this. Something collided with the moon and left a huge crater on the back side of the moon. If the moon hadn't caught it and it hit Earth, it would have been bad news. It would have been the end of life and the end of everything, perhaps. I'll be dang. So God placed the moon there for a reason, but there's even a purpose and reason for Jupiter and Saturn. Jupiter and Saturn were two, well, especially Jupiter. Jupiter was a star that didn't quite make it. It was almost, it almost became a star, but it just didn't quite have the energy to become a star. Just so happens we have a, an asteroid belt just outside of Mars, between Mars and um, Jupiter. That collects some debris uh, for us and protects us. But it just so happens to be that Jupiter and Saturn and Neptune and Uranus, I think I said those backwards, Uranus and Neptune, they are such large mass gas giants. They collect debris, and if it were not for those large mass gas giants, we would be bombarded by a lot more debris than what we are. They actually hmm. ward those things away from us and draw them into themselves. And actually, God designed it that way to protect us, as he has. Hmm. So they're kind of yeah, like, like little, the... Little space vacuums. Yeah. I kind of th- liken it to being like the lineman on um, on the uh, on the football team. 
So we're kind of like the quarterback, and and they're like the lineman that's protecting us from all the things that's trying to come through. Now, now, now granted, there are some debris. There are there is debris that gets through. Um, you know, if it comes in the right way, they still can come and is dangerous to us. But the majority sure. of that stuff is sucked into these large planets, mm. planetary bodies, and they serve That's as just crazy like linemen for us, uh, helping out. Mm. But there, I mean, mm. the, the I mean, we we look at uh, the structure of the universe. I mean, the four uh, the, the four forces: strong nuclear force, weak nuclear force, gravity, um, electromagnetism. It's not even just the things found on Earth. The whole structure of the universe is such that if it were any different, life would be impossible. And even when you go back to the creation of the universe, if certain things weren't the way they are, even like the what's called the, the God particle, the Higgs boson, hmm. even if it was not structured as it was, life would not be possible. I mean, there's like 181 cosmological constants that have to be just so fine-tuned to allow life to right. be. It's really fascinating. Right. Yeah, and if, you know, yeah, it's just amazing when you start, when we start uh, thinking about the laws of gravity, the laws of, you know, uh, just the laws of the speed of sound, the speed of light, all of those things, all involved in all of this, and yet we're in a spot where we can see light. We can hear things. We can. We know that when we wake up in the morning, and we're not going to be stuck to the roof of our house, or you know, um, just little things like that that we count on that we just don't even, um, I guess, consider each yeah, day. Absolutely. Yeah. So, how does the study of astrology and the Bible fit together, or does it at all? This this is where it gets a little bit. Shadowy or shady, or uh, it, there's a bit of a fog because we know that the Bible tells us not to use divination and not to use witchcraft and not to use certain things like that. However, there are times in the Bible where it does appear that astrology is used not to gauge the signs of the zodiac. Uh, and to determine a person's future. But there are times where celestial bodies have been used to um, predict certain things that are about to take place. It's kind of like what Jesus talks about, looking at the signs of the, of the, of the sky and telling when weather is going to come and whether weather is not going to come. Um, mm-hmm. In the Bible, it's used in, um, well, for instance, the, the uh, Magi who, or, or the wise mm-hmm. men who come to visit Jesus. Of course, we know the story that the nativity scenes are not right because it would have been a few months <laughs> at least, if not two years. Jesus may have been two years old by the time the wise men came. Right. But... Um, they give them gifts. I mean, they weren't all there holding the <laughs> lamb and the, all the all the bunnies and everything. Unfortunately, no. I mean, a lot of our nativity <laughs> scenes get that wrong. Unfortunately, but um, but they did they did show up, and I think they did bear gifts. And that may have been what funded uh, Jesus's family to be able to go to Egypt for a while. They may have even gone to Alexandria for all we know. And if so, Jesus may have gotten may have had some exposure to. Um, 
a lot of literature, a lot of different things during that time. Because, you know, Jewish boys were people of the book, and they would be trained to uh, read and write uh, and know their letters to be able to read the Torah. Mm -hmm. You know, that was expected of young Jewish men. But um, nonetheless, um, the astrologers, you know, the the, the wise men were astrologers in the ilk of the astrologers of uh, Persia and of uh, Mesopotamia, and it was part of their culture. Uh, they read the signs in the sky and knew that uh, the Messiah was going to be born, and it was going to be born um, in Judea uh, or, or in, in in Israel. And uh, that's why they came to Herod and asked where he was born, you know, where he was, because they knew, knew it was going to happen. So anyhow, um, there is that. There, there's also, um, it is believed in Revelation chapter 12, John may see certain signs on the Isle of Patmos. Uh, for instance, he says, uh, let me just read this passage of Scripture, a great sign appeared in heaven. Many people believe that that's some type of constellation he saw. A woman clothed with the sun, with a, wo- with a moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. Uh, she was pregnant and cried out in labor and agony as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. There was a great fiery dragon having seven heads and ten horns. And on its heads were seven crowns. Its tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and hurled them back to earth. And so, anyhow, there's we know the players of the story, the woman being Mary, um, and also could be a reference to the nation of Israel um, as well, and the dragon being Satan. But, but some people believe that John may be on the Isle of Patmos observing these signs in the night sky as God's giving him direction on how to interpret it. Um, hmm. So there may be some case to be made that there was some mild, very mild uh, astrological interpretations going on in Scripture. But it wasn't to the level and degree of what we see in uh, the signs of the Zodiac. And and Mm -hmm. the danger in that is that we can get so um, obsessed with reading the signs in the sky, reading the signs of the Zodiac, that we fail to entrust ourselves over to the creator of those stars uh, who gives us direction and insight. And um, mm-hmm. and furthermore, if we're not careful and we put too much emphasis on physical things, elements of the creation, then we could delve into witchcraft, which is highly right. eschewed and forbidden in the pages of Scripture for numerous right. reasons. One, it places creation over the Creator. Two, as we're talking about necromancy, talking with the dead and things of this nature, you when you open up Pandora's box, you don't know what you're going to get. Right. You might be talking yep. to someone or something on the other side, but it might be a demonic presence, and it might be something dangerous mm. you're delving into. And so there again... Why focus on the creation when we should be focused on the creator? That's that's the problem. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. That's good. So can you fill us in with the latest launch and landing on uh, uh, on the rover on Mars? Yeah, just very briefly. Uh, one of the biggest things, you know, so they, they launched the, uh, um, the, the mission, the Perseverance, and uh, the the key objection objective for Perseverance's mission, according to NASA.gov, on Mars is astrobiology, including the search for signs of ancient microbial life 
The rover will, rover will characterize the planet's geology and past climate, pave the way for human exploration of the red planet, and be the first mission to collect and cache, C-A-C-H-E, Martian rock and in, in regolith, uh, broken rock and dust. Subsequent NASA missions in cooperation with ESA, the European Space Agency, would send spacecraft to Mars to collect these sealed samples from the surface and return them for to Earth for in-depth analysis. So they are going to collect these things later on. The Mars 2020 Perseverance mission is part of NASA's Moon to Mars exploration approach, which includes Artemis missions to the moon that will help prepare for human exploration of the red planet. And recently, what they did is they launched a, uh, a rover called Ingenuity, um, or, or a helicopter uh, called Ingenuity, which actually used some of the material from the Wright brothers when they first flew uh, in, in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, was the first flight. Mm. They actually used some material from that as part of the first flight in uh, on the planet Mars. Wow. They are finding some fascinating yeah. things, but they are finding that that Mars is uh, very in, inhospitable and may actually require uh, spacesuits to be beefed up a little bit more than what they anticipated due to the toxic, toxicity of the soil on, on Mars. Hmm. But they are finding some even some bizarre things. They found one rock that was almost like an aqua color. Uh, I don't know. I haven't heard what they think that it is, but it is a bizarre looking rock. They're finding some interesting hmm. things there. Hmm. Interesting. So, the the rover landing and the interest in finding life on another planet. If they did, how would that impact our religious beliefs? Well, we know God is a creative God, and we know our planet is um, a very unique planet. Uh, but the universe is a very large place. So if it were to be that there was... Uh, now, now, let me just first of all say, when we talk about life in the universe, life could be micro microbes that we're talking about, or amino acids, or things of this nature, which doesn't necessarily constitute sentient life. Such as uh, when I say sentient life, I'm talking about mm-hmm. beings who can think, communicate, um, pe- things like us, you know, sentient beings. Mm-hmm. Um, so m- the life that they're looking for on Mars would be something more along the lines of microbes and and things of this nature, bacteria or, and things of that nature. But the question, the big question is, what do, what would happen if we found out that there were extraterrestrials uh, in the universe? It, it's it for those who believe in UFOs, ufologists, and people like that. They're they're coming to, and even Michael Heiser's even mentioned something like this in some of his works. If there were to be creatures like that, it seems like they may be what they're calling interdimensional entities, beings which sounds a whole lot more like spiritual beings than necessarily mm. necessarily anything else. And so we already know that there are spiritual beings that God has created. We know that a third of them rebelled against God and become demonic. Um, we know that two-thirds of them are still part of the heavenly host, the heavenly armies. So we know that there, there is life beyond the scope, sentient beings beyond just human beings that were created. Um, 
does life on other planets, would, would that shake our faith? I don't see where it would have to, or where it would necessarily need to, need to shake our faith, uh, because the Bible is dealing with God's interaction with people made on this planet. Um, I, I don't see a reason why it, why it should shake our faith. Hmm. You made a comment about about them finding quote unquote life on another planet, and I just find it ironic that that we spend this money to go to another planet to find a microbe or a, or a bacteria or such, and we call that life on another planet. But yet, our very culture today is denying that. A, 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 a lady or a woman is carrying a living human being in there uh, when she's pregnant. Yeah, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. In fact, I was talking with um, uh, a lady with whom I work um, in, in, in chaplaincy work. I was talking to her about this very issue today, about uh, not necessarily the whole issue about space, but the issue of, of the pro-life stance of the church throughout its its um, institution uh, in early days uh, of the church, it was held that life was valuable, no matter who it was, no matter no matter where it came from. Um, right. In fact, the Greeks and Romans used to have a practice. Their version of abortion was called exposure, and what they would do is they would have a child and they would place it on the hillside and uh, just leave it there and allow you know, wild animals to come and devour it or die from the elements. That would be their, their means of abortion. Um, you say, well, that sounds barbaric. Well, have you seen what happens in a, right. an abortion clinic? Right. Let's just shoot straight. That, that's yep. pretty barbaric. Um, yep. But having said that, having said all that, um, what the, what the early church would do is they used to come out and they would take the children that were exposed and they would adopt right. them and bring them to their own homes and they would care for them just as if they were one of their own. Awesome. Uh, life held va- uh, high value. In fact, it, it, the early Christians were admired for that, but they were sometimes scoffed. Why were they taking all these unwanted children? It was because they believed that life had value. Yeah, and so, value um, of life. Yeah, so, there, so people have dignity. And so... So yeah, I, I I get what you're saying, but I think there's an ulterior motive behind this, Curtis. I really do. I was listening to a radio program the other night with Mickey Alkeku, and he was talking about on the program about the desire to want to, uh, the desire to believe in and want to believe that there are other universes out there. Like there's maybe a multiverse. And there are other universes out there, and then he said. And the and the question was asked, why would we even care if there were other universes? And he said, because of the sheer fact that our universe is dying. We know that. We know that our universe is dying. Yes, and winding down. Yes, winding down. And we need to find an escape hatch. <laughs> we need to find another universe to go to. We need to find another universe to, to uh, be, we need to find ways to be able to leave this universe to go to another universe. The same thing is, I think, in part with the whole Mars exploration. If you can set up a colony there and you can make Mars habitable, if something were to happen to this planet, then maybe we could take people to that planet and continue the human race. But eventually, here's the thinkers, eventually 
the, the sun itself is going to run out of juice. And when it does, it's, become, it's going to become a red supergiant. And when that happens, everything's going to burn up. Now, I don't know how far it'll reach, but when it explodes, explodes or implodes, it's, everything's either going to freeze to death or it's going to burn up mm-hmm. in our solar system. So even if we were to habitate another planet, Mars, that's still not going to get us out of the woods because <laughs> we have to understand the sun's going to run out of steam. If we huh. could, and that's a huge if, if there are other universes, the, the thought process is that maybe black holes serve as wormholes to these other universes. But if you were to go through a, a black hole, you would be stretched into something no greater than a spaghetti noodle <laughs> and become flat to get there. So you wouldn't even survive the travel from this universe to another universe, if that's even possible, and even if there are other universes out there. And, and there's not a whole... I mean, you can use mathematics to say it's possible that there are other universes out there. I mean, we know that there's a heaven. We know that there's a hell. So we know that there are other dimensions of existence out there. Maybe right. there are other universes. I don't know. But even if there are, you're still not getting around the necessity of a creator because even a multiverse has to have an origin point. It just seems like the the, the emphasis is on trying to escape what's inevitable. And that is that this life is going to come to an end and we're going to enter into the eternal, the eternal realm. And mm-hmm. we're going to face God one way or the other. Yeah. I think there's a book that says something about that. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I think it says it's going to all burn up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's it's pretty darn clear about that. <laughs> First time it was destroyed by water, the next time it'll be destroyed mm-hmm. by fire. Right. And that is amazing to me when when theologically we read a book that tells us um you know, all the makings of things. It talks about um, life in the womb, um, you know, that God knows us by our name before we were even, uh, before we were even born. Um, it talks about, you know, the the ending of, of the planets and such. And isn't it funny how scientifically we have found those things out we found out that the universe is winding down we found out that the sun is going to uh, basically super explode itself and burn everything up either that um, or implode on itself but in either way right, you, you, right you're looking at the same fate i mean it may be just come a different way right. it may just come so a different way i mean it to me it's it's just funny how um as the scientists keep climbing and finding out more and more information they keep finding that the theologians have already been there (laughs) you know it's just it to me it's crazy when we when we sit and we think about it how how this stuff has um really come out for us scientifically absolutely I mean, even the so, book of, I think it was Second Peter, talks about God the Father stepping on the scene and the elements of creation rolling back like a scroll. Um, yeah. You know, I believe it's literally when, when God steps on the scene, all yep. of the universe is going to fade away, you know, and there'll be a new creation amazing? after that. But still, even if he uses, uh, if even if he were to use the sun to do that, 
that would literally be <laughs> Hiroshima and Nagasaki would be nothing compared right. to what will happen when the sun blows up. Right. It, you know, and then it's just the just the very uh, scripture that says that when Jesus comes back, he's going to have one foot on on the Mount of Olives and one foot in the ocean, and it's yeah. just like, wow! Split the mountains when he when he lands or when he steps down. Yeah, Book of Zechariah makes that projection. It projects that very yeah. thing. Amazing, isn't it? Absolutely. So, why is space exploration important to Christianity? I think it is important for us to glorify God. You know, it. Uh, I, th- I think the more we can learn about creation, the more we can learn about God's handiwork. And I think it tells us a lot about uh, how small we are in c- comparison to the universe. Um, and who knows, there may be some even some discoveries that can be made from this mm-hmm. that will even help us on the planet Earth uh, to do things a little better. Than, than mm. what we than what we're doing th- you know right now it may be mm-hmm. you know for for instance you know they're they're working even now uh, according to some some resources I've I've um, investigated that they're even working now on hydrogen on a nuclear fusion you know nuclear power plants cause that uh, they they work by nuclear fission when elements atomic elements are separated nuclear fusion is what the sun is doing. It, it's taking, mm. uh, it's fusing together two hydrogen, you know, uh, molecules and making helium out of it. It's it's welding it together, fusing it together, and they've been trying to. Scientists have been working hard on trying to capture that um, type of energy, uh, and because it's cleaner and it lasts a lot longer than even nuclear mm-hmm. fission does. Uh, mm. The only problem with the whole thing is, you know, what do you do with the the uh, radioactive material? Uh, does that come by nuclear fusion? I don't know. But by learning more about the universe, mm. we can learn better ways to use energy. We can use more. We can learn more about the creation God's given us, and it really, I think, honestly, puts us and <laughs> gives us a perspective of how big God is and how small we are. Yeah. But I do think there are very practical uh, things that can come by space exploration. Right. Yeah. It, and I guess I guess the question I have for for you in that is um <laughs> this might be kind of dumb. How dangerous do you think this stuff is it is? How how dangerous yeah, this nuclear fusion. Well, the, the, as compared to like the nuclear like you were saying, the nuclear power plants and, and such, you know, I mean, obviously that was dangerous. We had to keep things, you know, under under certain control. It, being able to control and harness that, that amount of energy is always going to be dangerous because you're mm-hmm. talking about things on a molecular level. Uh, it, you know, the problem is, is we as, as human beings – we often find something good and we make something bad out of it. We found nuclear fission and then we made we mm-hmm. made the uh, atomic bomb. We discovered nuclear fusion and we made the hydrogen bomb from that, you know, which is even bigger and better. The problem with nuclear fusion is trying to be able to harness that energy to to use, in a usable fashion and control mm-hmm. it so that it doesn't get out of hand. So it can be very dangerous. I mean, I was a... Uh, mm-hmm. I took a program in, uh, I actually have a degree in electrical maintenance and at one time thought about going to be an electrical engineer uh, because I saw how much 
our local uh, power company paid for uh, power plant workers, and it was really good. <laughs> I mean, it was mm. it paid really well. But the reason it paid really well is because you're dealing with some very dangerous, you know, substances. Uh, nuclear sure. engi- nuclear engineering is a wonderful field, but it, it can be dangerous. Uh, but um, that, that's the that's that's part of the problem. That's been kind of the tricky thing: being able to use it and develop it, but being able to harness it and control it so that it doesn't get out of hand. And it's and it's not always. That's why it's taken so long. I mean, they've known about this for decades. Uh, mm. But being able to harness it and use it, that's been the tricky part. Mm. Crazy. <laughs> yeah. So how can we use this uh, as a ministry to the communities we live in? Well, I think it helps us to take time to go out and look at God's creation. We have such beauty surrounding us, Curtis, but mm. we don't we don't observe it. We don't take notice of it. You know, God yeah, allowed us take the time for it. Yeah, absolutely. And I even I even realized this the other day. I mean, went outside. Of course, we've had some up and down weather here in the Carolinas. But you know, I was indoors doing some doing some catching up on some reading for the dissertation, doing some other things indoors. And I stepped outside for a while, and I thought, man, alive! I've been inside so long that all this beauty is out here, and I hadn't been I haven't mm. been observing it. And I think the true if the same thing is true for all of us. We get so busy with life that we don't take the time to stop and observe what God has created for us. And if we do, you know, we may have a lot of problems. And this is one of the things that stargazing, one of the things that stargazing really reminds me of in my own life, that no matter how big our problems are, we serve a God that's a whole lot bigger than what we mm. ever imagined. And if we just stop and look at the immensity of the universe, the immensity and intensity of some of these stars, which which are even greater than even the sun itself, um, it really puts things in perspective. For, for instance, if you want to see some of the brightest and hottest stars, look at their colors. Stars have mm. different colors. Look for blue ones. Blue ones are normally the biggest and the hottest. The red ones are, generally speaking, a little... They're, they're the weakest ones. But it just so happens really? the red ones last longer than the blue ones because the blue ones are so big and burn so bright. If you look for Sirius, Sirius, I think, is on the uh, white spectrum. Um, the... Um, oh... Vega is, I think, a blue one. Uh... I was actually working on this not long ago. What is the name of that star? Um, I'll tell you what, give me just a second. Let me look it up. Blue Giants. Um, Blue Giant Bellatrix is, is one. Uh, if you can find the star Algol, uh, that's one. Uh, that's Rigel. Rigel is the name of the star I was trying to think of. Uh, Rigel. I think it's in. If if I'm not mistaken, I believe it's in the constellation Orion or pretty close to it. But Rigel is a bright blue star. It, it is one of the hottest observable stars in the universe that we that we know of. I mean, it's not mm. the hottest, but it's among the hottest that we can see with a naked eye. 
That we can see. That we wow. can see. In fact, they even have a uh, spectrum which they gauge the stars. And, and if you remember the acronym, OBA Fine Girl Kiss Me. And girls, you can use guys there. Uh, o is the hottest spectrum. They go from um, blue stars to um, the B type class stars, which are kind of a whitish, bluish color. Uh, then it goes to uh, white stars, yellow stars, and then kind of a yellow orangey color, and then it goes down to red, which are the weakest stars. But they do have different colors uh, about of about everything in the spectrum except for purple, and there's not there's no green. Hmm. I'll be dang. So, what tools and equipment do you suggest for people if they want to actually start viewing the stars? I would recommend. Uh, a good telescope, and I would also also recommend a good star finding app on your phone. I mean, there are some wonderful uh, apps on the phone that you can use. Uh, Sky View, I believe, is one of them. Um, what it'll do is when you bring it up on your phone, it'll show you. It, some of them will even use your um, your camera on your phone, and will help guide you to find. Uh, some of these constellations, some of the stars. Skyview is one. There's another one called Night Sky. Skyview I use. Starwalk I've used as well. Starwalk is good, but Skyview is probably my favorite one of all of them. Uh, but there are, there are several different ones you can use. But go out and get a uh, telescope, a, a, a good-sized telescope. It doesn't have to be ultra-expensive, especially if you're starting off uh, but go get that. And even if you have nothing more than a pair of binoculars, you can catch a bunch of things with a good uh, stargazing app and a pair of binoculars. Uh, if you want to invest the money in them, I actually have a pair of what's called Astro um, binoculars, which are like it's like a telescope, but it limits. Um, well, actually, it allows more light in, so you can't use it during the daytime as, as much, but it allows more light in so that you can observe even more distant things than what you could with the naked eye. Mm. So there are some things out there definitely uh, that will uh, help you catch more things. And honestly, Curtis, the fun thing about it is it's very challenging. If you hear of certain things and look for certain things, some things are more challenging to find than other things. So I've honestly, I've gone out and spent hours... I've been out there till almost midnight and didn't even realize 10 minutes had passed because I'm trying to mm. find certain planetary bodies or certain um, just certain things in the night sky, galaxies, and so on and so forth. Uh, certain things out there that uh, that are in the night sky that are just a little more difficult to find. Mm. But one of the coolest things I found, let me just close with this, one of the coolest things I found was the uh, galaxy Andromeda. I saw it with a pair of binoculars. Excuse me, with a with a telescope, and it was just amazing to see this thing that looked like blue egg yolk, and realize that this was another galaxy just like ours. Wow! Just absolutely phenomenal. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Well, get out there and start stargazing, folks, and uh, uh, don't look for the signs, but look for the stars. Absolutely. And uh, just relish in God's glory. That's what we're called to do. So, it was fun. We here at Bellator Christie want to thank you for spending time together with us. And we value that time. Our prayers that this podcast helps stretch your mind and is a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and as a reliable source of information. 
Join us next time on the Bellator Christie Podcast. And until next time, Brian and I say, So long, listening to the Bellator Christie podcast brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. The Bellator Christie podcast and bellatorchristie.com are protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The opening theme is the song Crucified, written by John and Michaela Limanis, performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christie. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. Do you have a question about the Bible, theology, or apologetics that you've always wanted to ask but never felt comfortable asking? If so, we want to encourage you to head over to bellatorchristie.com and submit your question on the Submit a Question link. Your question will be reviewed and may be featured on a future article or podcast. Remember, the only dumb question is the one unasked. So go over to bellatorchristie.com now and submit your question. Have you ever wondered about the Christian faith, but have become bogged down by difficult terminology? Are you a Christian and faced doubts and you didn't know where to turn? Maybe your faith has been challenged and you don't know how to respond. Or perhaps you desire to learn more about how to winsomely defend your faith, but you do not have the time nor the finances to enroll in seminary. If any of these situations describes you, then consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics. This book confronts the challenges facing the Christian faith, but does so in a way that is accessible to everyone. The Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is available in softcover, hardcover, on the Kindle, and Nook. Consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics from your favorite bookstore today.